Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Yesterday marked the day, phase two reopening for New York City. One of the uh, areas that got uh, a little bit of relief was the restaurant business. Outdoor dining now allowed uh, as uh, the restaurant industry tries to get back on its feet to get a sense of how that went and how the restaurant industry globally is faring here in this pandemic world. We welcome Kate Crater, food editor for Bloomberg Pursuits. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of how you think the reopening of the restaurant business in New York City is going to go. We're all going to be sitting on sidewalks and in the middle of the street, I guess. But what did you <laughs> what did you see yesterday, and what are some of the restaurant tours thinking as as uh, they reopen? Um, that's a really good question, um, and I think um, I think how it went and how it's going to go depends on who you ask, because for some people, for restaurateurs. I think a lot of them are just delighted that they get to be back in business and serving people. And, you know, they've been setting up tables six feet apart and, you know, all of a sudden, like, activating their parking lots and turning them into dining rooms. Um, but for then, for some other people, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. And so for some people, they realize that selling a $10 um, bowl of soup is not financially viable when you can only do 50% capacity and have people six feet apart. So it's different. It's different throughout. But I think there's a cost of optimism. That's what I would say overall. Yeah, Kate, there are 27,000 restaurants in New York City. Surely all of them wow. don't have outside room, do they? No, they sure, they sure don't. <laughs> Not New York City. I mean, the mayor has closed, I think, like 43 miles of streets. And that some of that can alleviate a lot of restaurants were able to apply for outdoor seating permits in a place like Peter Luger in Brooklyn that has never, ever served steak outside their doors, um, (laughs) got the permit, got the permit. And as of Thursday is going to have tables outside their restaurant and is turning their parking lot into a sort of picnic area. So, um, so a lot of restaurants can take advantage of it. But certainly, you're right, not all of them can, and not all of them want to. Just to follow there, I wasn't sure if you needed a permit. How does the permitting system work, and how much does it cost? Um, that's a good question that I haven't applied to a permit, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I know that I know that the permitting um, went live on, I think it was, it was either Thursday or Friday, so just like four or five days ago to have a permit for Monday. So there's been a lot of, there hasn't always been great messaging from the government. You know, I think that a lot of restaurants and restaurateurs continue to have a lot of questions about what to do. For instance, you're eating outdoors, but what happens if you have to go to the bathroom? Because there's all these rules about distance and how many people can use the bathroom and all of it. So there's still a ton of questions. Um, but the permitting process, I think it went really quickly once people could apply, but the applications went up very late, as I understand it. So, Kate, I know uh, Leslie Patton and you wrote a story for today on the Bloomberg, and the, the headline really grabbed me. 2.2 million restaurants worldwide teeter on the brink of collapse. Can this restaurant industry, is this going to be permanently scarred here? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And we're never going to, you know, if you think we're going to go back to what it was like in February 2020, we're not. You know, I think um, there's there's no way there's no 
there is no going back. Everybody has to move forward. And the most successful people, the most successful restaurateurs are going to be the ones who realize that and figure out, see new, new ways, new way forward and opportunity. But um, there was a report from the National Restaurant Association that the industry has already lost $120 billion, and they don't think they can be profitable for at least six months. And I think six months is optimistic, actually. Yeah, and I mean, for restaurants, you have to be profitable on a weekly basis in order to keep them running, Kate. How will the restaurants that have low occupancy to begin with, I, I mean, I'm, several on my street alone can only fit uh-huh. a certain amount of people, how do they manage week to week if they just don't get those extra 10 customers that they need to make that profit margin? Yeah, Vani, that's such a good question. And I think especially right now in phase two where it's all outdoor seating, um, this um, chef, Mike Price, at the Clam in New York was saying, usually you could have a slow Monday or Tuesday, but your Saturday, your Saturday would cover your costs. Mm. And now there's so many variables. And also outdoor seating is dependent on weather. So if you have a rainy Saturday and you thought you mm. had sold, you know, sort of sold out, and then you can't fit everybody in. That's a disaster. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of restaurants have been enterprising and turned themselves into like grocery stores and selling cocktails. And that's done a surprisingly good job of helping um, helping create income. But I think exactly as you said, it's still like the margins are so slim anyway. So um, it's a real, uh, it's it's a very challenging future. So just real quick, um, in New York City, how many restaurants are expected to, boy, just go out of business, I guess? Um, that's, a, that's a good and scary question. Um, Open Table did a survey, and they um, thought nationally 25% of restaurants wouldn't make mm-hmm. it. I think in New York that number might be higher. I'm sure, I mean, I think that's a conservative estimate anyway. But in New York, as you guys were saying, space is much tighter, so 50% occupancy is is a big difference, like 10 people, like yep. Bonnie said. So I think that number is going to be higher. I would not be surprised if it's like at least 40%. It's a Boy. very scary number. Yeah, it's terrifying. Kate, there's some great details in your story. I would urge everyone to read it. 2.2 million restaurants worldwide teeter on brink of collapse. That's Kate Crater there joining us. And one of those... Paragraphs, Paul, lays out just how much it costs to change to contactless takeout orders and delivery, of course, and there's equipment, walkie-talkies, masks, thermometers, about $5,000 a month for the average restaurant, apparently. Yeah, that's the the economics on the delivery business. Not nearly as good as the uh, in-store dining. Data Check Research produces a morning note that is always, always thought-provoking. Five days a week, something just sparks the thought process when you take a look at the email. And in recent days, the co-founder Nick Colas has been looking at everything from yield curve control to the impact of the upcoming elections on stocks and on markets and how this do-nothing market is um, just a little bit baffling and some ideas for what to do in this do-nothing market. Let's bring him in now, Nick Colas, co-founder of DataCheck Research. Nick, let's start with yield curve control, only because you pointed out today the New York Fed blog out, which explains why yield curve control is more efficient than quantitative easing. And at the same time, in a different region, the St. Louis Fed president, Jim Bullard, is saying, no, we're not going to have yield curve control. It's, it's unnecessary. Yes, it was fascinating to see the New York Fed actually put out a blog analyzing the Japanese 
experience with yield curve control and pointed out very clearly that yield curve control has the advantage of not requiring as much capital from a central bank to execute a given rate target for, say, the long end of the curve. So instead of spending tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars to hold rates at a certain level, simply telling the market we're going to peg it at X means you have to spend much less money to make it stay at X. So it's fascinating to see the New York Fed saying there is some merit to yield curve control in terms of efficiency in central bank balance sheets. Hey, Nick, I mean, so when you think about this market here, are you concerned about what I'm going to term or the lack of uh, a breath, if you will, in this market, uh, you know, this 40% move off the bottom? It's, you know, centered on a handful of names, the Amazons and the Apples of the world. How much of a concern is that for you? Yeah, it's a fascinating point. I mean, if you look at the 2009 rally, for example, which uh, there are many analogs to the current rally in that one, the 2009 rally was all about the banks. The banks doubled in value from March 9th 2009 through the next 60 days, 90 days rather, you know, basically the same day as today. So it was led by banks even more than this rally has been led by tech. So it does feel that big snapback rallies off the bottom are always led by something. In 09, it was banks for all the obvious reasons. This time around, it's been tech because of all the stay at home, work at home phenomena Mm -hmm. that we're seeing still play out to this day. And that seems to have caught investors' attention. So I'd say as unusual as it is, it does fit a paradigm for snapback rallies like 09 and 2020. Nick Robinhood has been a huge source <laughs> of interest to you know so many people all over the country in the recent days and weeks. Retail platform for retail traders. How much of an impact are these people that maybe have an average account size that you say less than $5,000? How much of an impact are they really having on the market? You know, as a market impact, I'd say not that much. They do get a lot of press because of things like Hertz, and the USO ETF before that. And so they are making some rookie mistakes because that's what rookies do, and that's fine. <laughs> but as you said, the account balances are relatively small. Robinhood doesn't even have an IRA product. This is all kind of discretionary retail money, taxable money, people putting in a couple of thousand dollars to play the market while sports betting is closed. So I think it's interesting, but I don't think it's had a big effect in terms of money flows. But I tell you, I mean, having looked at markets for 30 years, it is fascinating to see, you know, a couple of million people decide they want to trade stocks in the course of 90 days, because that hasn't happened in 20 years. So it's, it's interesting to see, but from a money flow perspective, not all that relevant. Well, Nick, you are no rookie. As you say, 30 years, you're a grizzled veteran here. So you've been through a lot of presidential elections here. And uh, somebody told me that 2020 is an election year. How are you kind of – nobody's really focusing on it right now because obviously there are just bigger issues, more immediate issues for uh, folks and investors. How are you thinking about the presidential election coming up here in the fall? You know, the way we're thinking about it is not just the presidential election, but the congressional ones as well. And we did some work uh, for clients last night that looked at, okay, so back to 1945, how does the market do when one party controls both the White House and Congress, both chambers? It's only happened in 30 years over the last 75, so less than half the time. But when it does happen, if Republicans hold both White House and Congress, the S&P is up an average of 16%. And when Democrats hold both houses, uh, both chambers and the White House, it's up 14.3% on average. And the drawdowns are never really bad. Those are both better than the average S&P return.
current since World War II, which is 11%. So the really important thing is somebody, either party, somebody has to own the economy, own the problems, and find the solutions. And as long as that happens, markets tend to do okay. So we're not as worried or focused on whether it's Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden as much as someone's got to own it. Because particularly in 2021, the economy is still going to need a, need a lot of help. And if one party owns it, one party has to fix it. Yeah, we actually heard Bill Ackman say that yesterday as well, that he's not making any you know, predictions or any trades based on who might be the next president. And at the same time, Nick, we're going to have such different policies under a Joe Biden than under a second term President Trump, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest worry, I think, for markets is, OK, uh, corporate taxes obviously came down in 2017, will almost certainly go back up if Democrats control both chambers and the White House. But we might also see continuations of uh, fiscal stimulus programs into 2021 if unemployment continues to be high. And if one party owns the economy next year, they will have to figure out a way to make growth happen, even if it means more fiscal stimulus. So to me, it's twixt and tween between the two problems. Yes, probably higher corporate taxes, but if we can reach escape velocity and achieve a better economy through fiscal stimulus, that's a positive. So I think it balances out. So, Nick, it seems like I'm just looking at a chart just on... uh and it's showing kind of the, the COVID cases in the U.S. and, the, you know, it's re-recently it's kind of turned the other way, the wrong way here. Yet the market seems to be kind of discounting that so much, whereas if, this, if we'd seen the spike up in big states like, you know, Texas or Florida, uh, we'd see, a, I think, a pretty negative reaction in the markets back in February and, and early, uh, March and early April. What is your sense of kind of how the market's thinking about the virus per se? Yeah, Very, very important point. I think two things. Um, The first is, this is why tech is still rallying. You know, tech was the play off the bottom because of work at home and all the other things we know, and tech continues to lead. That's one way of knowing that the market is saying, we're not going to play the rebound, the classic rebound trades. We're playing tech because those things work regardless of what happens with the virus and infection rates and how states manage lockdowns and so forth. The second point I think the market is saying is America is basically going to try to power through this. Infection rates are going up, but it seems to be among younger people with at least historically lower mortality rates. And so this will be a problem, but it won't be the existential problem that it was when we locked down the entire country for the better part of a month. So the market is saying profits going to recover, but we still want to be in the more defensive names for this environment, which is tech and tech leads the market higher. And Nick, thanks so much for joining us once again. As always, we learn a thing or two when we talk with you. Nick Colas, co-founder, Data Trek Research. Uh, I recommend you read his stuff. It's just really, really uh, insightful, really gives you some uh, food for thought as we think about uh, navigating these markets here in these uncertain times. Well, we learned a lot about Apple's strategy yesterday from Tim Cook at the Worldwide Developers Conference, which took place virtually. It continues. Let's bring in somebody who knows all about Apple and who can tell us what exactly we need to be watching out for. David Garrity is Chief Market Strategist at Laidlaw and Company. So we got the big announcement yesterday, David, that Apple is going to replace chips with its own chips. So Intel no longer needed, Intel no longer inside, Apple inside these days. What else can we anticipate will emanate from the week that will be of useful uh, interest to investors? Yeah, no, certainly, Bonnie. Um, what's been coming out of the conference, apart from the fact that their move away from Intel to their own design chips, 
is the fact that with regards to chip designs, they're going to use ARM-designed chips as a platform across their entire range of hardware products with the idea that this can not only provide benefits in terms of reduced power consumption, but also provide a standardized platform that their developers can write programs to across all of their products. So, David, give us a sense. It seems like a kind of a big deal to me to moving away from, you know, the tried and true uh, chip maker that is Intel that they've used for many years to their own chip. Why are they doing it? Why are they doing it now? What's kind of the rationale? Well, I mean, Apple certainly has gotten to a scale uh, where it's possible for them to consider investments that they may not have done previously. Note, however, that, you know, Apple historically has had a business in which they've been involved in designing semiconductors. Now, they'd had this in cooperation with IBM in terms of IBM was running the semiconductor fabrication plant where Apple design chips were made. So this is not entirely a new business for Apple and also speaks to the scale and also arguably speaks to what their own intentions are for their technology that perhaps Intel was not able to support as readily. Now, in terms of supporting its developer community, uh, uh, Tim Cook has been trying to do a good job, but the U.S. and Europe is investigating Apple over sort of antitrust allegations, how much it takes from developers in the App Store and so on. What happens? How does the story end? Well, you know, certainly this has gotten to be the services business for Apple has gotten to be a, a fairly significant portion of their overall revenue high. Last year, about $46 billion of what Apple made was coming out of services. These are fueled by third-party developers. Now, as we've read and know, uh, Apple charges its third-party developers 30% of their revenues to actually have their products listed on the App Store. Uh, You know, from the standpoint of business development, 30% is a pretty big cut. One would argue that Apple perhaps could get by with something half or less of that and still provide a very encouraging signal to its third-party developer community and at the same time themselves grow a very substantial business. So clearly the argument here around the economics in terms of this business model, certainly Apple is in a position potentially to give more in order to maintain a vibrant third-party developer community. David, a big part of the bull case for Apple stock is 5G, and the arrival of 5G presumably will spark a super cycle in phone replacements, and of course, Apple will benefit from that. What do you expect to hear? What have we heard at this conference about 5G and what it means for Apple? Uh, Nothing in particular as of yet, but I would expect that the company should be making some indications that will get people excited about the upcoming launch in late September of the 5G iPhone. Um, You know, certainly the 5G iPhone, Apple in this regard is following other competitors as Apple is wont to do in terms of adopting new technologies, but having an Apple product able of using 5G networks and the greater speeds and data capabilities those networks have, we do believe very much will prompt an upgrade in terms of the user base for the Apple iPhone. Uh, Something clearly, I think, that given the scale of Apple, uh, you know, should be an important development for them in terms of not only their smartphone business, but that of the overall smartphone market. Tim Cook was very vocal today about the president's decision to suspend the giving out of H-1B visas through the end of the year, new ones at least. And I'm curious, David, will this have an immediate impact on Apple? 
Um, I think if there's anything that we've learned, not specifically from Apple, but more from dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, is that companies are more and more capable of operating on a distributed basis. We don't necessarily need to have workers co-located. Now, obviously, the intent of the H-1B visa program was to be bringing workers physically into a location here in the United States in order to operate. I don't think that, you know, not having an H-1B visa program is going to be detrimental to Apple in the near term. The bigger implication, I think, not for Apple, but more for the U.S. economy, is that by potentially denying 525,000 high-paid workers uh, presence in the United States economy, uh, the Trump administration has deprived the U.S. economy of the spending that those 525,000 well-paid workers would bring with them. And so from this standpoint, it seems to our view sort of a cut-the-nose-off-to-spite-your-face kind of move by the Trump administration, not very well-informed and certainly misguided. David, just uh, got about a minute left. Uh, is the overhang from regulatory risk that was building for the tech industry last year and going into this year, has that kind of abated given all that's going on in the world now? Um, I would say that you know there are a matter of uh, priorities or triage, if you will, in terms of dealing with the things that confront society, COVID-19 being first and foremost. But when things do settle down, once we get past the November election, I certainly do expect that there will continue to be demands for greater oversight with respect to the technology community, focus on data privacy, um, you know, the extent to which media continues to be used uh, and to be manipulated uh, with regards to the upcoming election remains a vital concern. So, you know, there's a great deal that still remains to be done. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, you know, certainly has broken ranks uh, with others such as Zuckerberg in saying that they would take down political content or be more aggressive in policing this content. Um, but no, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination as far as greater oversight of the technology community. Hey, David, thanks so much for joining us. As always, a good uh, wrap-up on kind of what's going on at Apple, their uh, event this week, as well as all things technology. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist at Laidlaw, uh, and also a partner at BT Block, giving us his overview of the market. Paul Sweeney, remember when trade headlines used to equip yes, the markets? exactly right. <laughs> well, we had a little reminder of that yesterday and into this morning when Peter Navarro, the White House advisor, who, of course, has been appointed to help the president on U.S. trade with China, sowed confusion in a Fox interview. He said, basically, that the U.S.-China trade agreement was over. Well, you might think that that would have snuck by markets, but no, we got a, a big change in markets and US President Donald Trump actually had to come out and clarify and say no actually the deal with China is fully intact for more on what went on behind the scenes and what we should expect trade-wise over the next six months let's bring in Bloomberg trade czar Brendan Murray joining us from London Brendan what was this all about was Peter Navarro trying to sow some mischief with the Chinese well he sounded like uh, in an answer to a question uh, on a TV interview that the that the uh, that the that the China U.S. trade deal, this Phase One deal that they signed in January, was over, uh, and so that's that obviously is underpinning a lot of agricultural purchases and uh, and other things that uh, you know the Trump administration negotiated, uh, and they you know put uh, the American companies under a lot of stress with uh, tariffs over the past few years. So uh, the news that uh, or the apparent uh, news that 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 deal had come undone. Uh, you know, was really what spooked investors. Now, 
it, it turns out that President Trump tweeted just a, a little while later that that, that, it, that the deal was still intact. That uh, you know, uh, Peter Navarro, you know, who wrote a book called "Death by China," incidentally, uh, you know, was uh, was misunderstood. So uh, you know, he's obviously one of the you know one of the one of the most hawkish uh, m- uh, members of the Trump economic team on China. So it's no surprising that you know he you know he he, he thinks that uh, you know, the trust is gone, but. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's definitely it goes to show you that you know markets are you know kind of uh, on edge, and and if that trade deal uh, disintegrates, then uh, you know we might see you know uh, even more selling. So Brendan, what is the status of the Phase One deal? I've read some reports where maybe China's only bought maybe twenty five percent or so, or uh, of what they were committed to in terms of agricultural products and and other other products. Where are we with Phase One? So the person to listen to on phase one is Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative. It's the deal he negotiated, he, you know, seems to be the point person on it, not okay. Navarro. So if you if you listen to Lighthizer, he thinks that basically China, uh, and he testified in Congress last week, that China really didn't get started buying, uh, you know, the agricultural uh, commodities that they promised to uh, until maybe March or April, kind of once they got through the, the, the worst of the coronavirus uh, outbreak there. So he he sounds a bit sympathetic uh, and, uh, you know, is giving them the benefit of the doubt and, you know, is, and has seen uh, some purchases in recent weeks. Uh, you know, whether that continues is anybody's guess, but uh, Lighthizer, for his part at least, you know, seems to be uh, still still confident that, uh, that it's going to, that purchases are going to pick up in the second half of the year and China will keep, uh, you know, keep those commitments. Well, and there was always the question mark over whether China could actually fulfill all the purchases that it had promised. But separately from that, Brendan, was there any impact on the deal from the John Bolton allegations that the president sort of asked China to, you know, it's not something we didn't know or didn't suspect, but sort of very black and white, the idea that the national security advisor was saying that President Trump straight out asked China to buy agricultural goods in states where he might be, you know, on the balance between getting reelected and not reelected. Will that have any impact on the talks? It doesn't seem to have had an impact on, you know, the actual deal that they signed itself. But it just throws it just throws the whole relationship, uh, you know, into more, uh, you know, into into more turmoil. And, you know, if you doubted, uh, you know, if you doubted whether there were political motivations behind, um, you know, that that uh, that deal that Trump was pushing, uh, you know, you might you might uh, you might think twice now. But uh, it but it's it's it's. It's definitely added a layer of intrigue and uh, and, uh, and a lot to talk about uh, in Washington, in Washington at least. So, uh, Brendan, you say uh, Robert Lighthizer, Robert Lighthizer is, is one of the folks in Washington we should be listening to, and he recently said in Bloomberg News was reporting that uh, tariffs, maybe even higher tariffs on medical supplies and PPE, would be a good thing. I'm just not sure how that would be to the extent we are seeing some spikes in cases, and we may have a you know, kind of another wave uh, of the virus uh, in the fall. What do you think his logic is there? Well, his logic is that if we put tariffs on uh, on imports, then then uh, producers will have an incentive to make them domestically. So his his you know tariffs drive uh, you know the return of manufacturing jobs to to the U.S. in uh, in. Uh, Ambassador Lighthizer's, um, you know, world, and you know that's debatable, obviously. But um, but it, you know, it's 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 
It gives you a sense of uh, of all that we've been through, two years of a, of a trade war with China, $370 billion worth of of tariffs, uh, of, of products that, are, that have tariffs on them, you know, that he, he still finds, uh, and, and some problems with the, you know, the uh, medical supplies, the personal protective equipment coming to the U.S. during the, during the, during the worst of the pandemic, you know, that, that tariffs still, uh, you know, are the answer for him. And, uh, you know, it kind of, it, it, it could give you a sense, too, of where, where we might be headed with uh, with Europe uh, and the trade relationship, that's that's not getting better either, um, and uh, and uh, you know which sets up sets us up for an interesting second half of the year. <laughs> Brendan Murray with the understatement uh, of the day, perhaps Brendan Murray, trade czar for Bloomberg News. We always appreciate getting your perspective on trade. And as Bonnie, as you mentioned, it's kind of a topic we haven't spent too much time on over the past couple months as we've been dealing with uh, the pandemic. But as you suggested earlier, Bonnie, that that it is still uh, you know right front and center for uh, the markets here because it really impacts the economic uh, trajectory of not only the United States but uh, also our trading partners around the world. So it bears watching and folks like Brendan Murray help us do that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.